Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of the Breaking Changes podcast. I'm your host and chief evangelist for Postman, Ken Lane. With Breaking Changes, we explore topics from the world of APIs, but through the lens of business and engineering leadership. Joining me today, we have David Dimko, Director of Engineering and Cloud Native at Constant. David shared with me a fresh view of what the cloud means in 2022 and what the most meaningful aspects of how APIs and the cloud will be defined in the future. Let's start with the basics. Who are you and what do you do? Hey, uh, my name is David Dimko. I am the Director of Cloud Engineering at Vulture. Um, and that my day-to-day -day kind of <laughs> maintains the open source API load balancers and Kubernetes for, for Vulture. Describe Vulture for me. Yeah, so we are a cloud provider. Um, we kind of support your basic cloud needs. Uh, we have regular compute, block storage, object storage, load balancers, uh, manage Kubernetes, um, a marketplace so you can kind of deploy any kind of operating system or image. So we, we're we're a cloud provider through and through, right? Um, we are a, a independent cloud provider. So when you're kind of looking at us, you know, we're similar to someone like DigitalOcean or Linode, um, and we're not. We're a bit simpler and easier to use than looking at someone like one of the hyperscalers like AWS. So we're kind of simpler to use, a bit more predictable in terms of billing and behavior. But our our, our bread and butter is uh, a cloud provider for developers, uh, enterprises, customers like that. So where do where do we stand after? You know, I haven't done a lot of reassessing of the the kind of cloud evolution and journey but you know mm -hmm. we're going on well 14 15 years here of kind of aws you know the the battles between azure and aws and google and all of this but where i mean do you in the evolution of hosting providers um you, you mentioned digital ocean you know which i would say consider considered to be a, a, a older school hosting provider we have um, Rackspace kind of seemed to, they'd gone all in on OpenShift and open, kind of an open approach to cloud to try to compete, mm -hmm. but they've seemed to have gone away. Like what's what's the race look like today? And and, and you mentioned a few of them, but what, what, do you, what are the differenti differentiators that you're competing on that I think really matter to folks? Well, some of the things that I kind of take to heart are like, you know, making it easy for developers to build infrastructure to get started with, with open source tooling to make that 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 type of stuff easier. So, let's say I was looking to start you know a, a company and I needed some kind of cl cloud provider. No one's really going to these data centers and you know stacking their own racks anymore. Everyone's kind of virtualizing and looking for that ease of use. So with some with with things that we offer at Vulture, you know, it's really simple for me to kind of get started with a simple VPS, one core, one gig, just to kind of get my site up and running. But then as I grow, we kind of want to cater to your scale. So we might want to deploy a load balancer um, and not have to like really worry about the underlying networking, the other, you know, the underlying connectivity to make sure it's highly available. Um, so that's kind of like what, what, when I look at us as a cloud provider and kind of my my vertical slices that I work on, I'm trying to make it simpler and easier for users to build their resources, deploy their resources, but then also, you know, 
maintaining the API and the open source, making it super easy to give them multiple avenues to get started. So if I want to use the API to do some custom integrations and custom deployments, that's really simple. We have a great API that's been you know updated recently to like a more modern um, open API type of specification. Um, with tools like Terraform or Repacker or CLI, like we we want to make it easy so that again developers have a very clear multiple ways to get started without having to worry about the underlying headaches of what you know we used to kind of do to deploy applications uh, in data centers. And I think Kubernetes is a big push um, because you know Kubernetes is kind of the the current buzzword that everyone's kind of going for with containers. And maintaining a Kubernetes cluster on its own, I would say, is quite complex. Um, you need, you know, it's like you need a dedicated DevOps team just to kind of maintain it. So offering something like a managed Kubernetes cluster, in my opinion, is a great segue to kind of the cloud infrastructure for developers. Because just worry about your, your workloads, worry about your application, worrying about scaling it, but you don't have to worry about the control plane for a Kubernetes cluster, making sure that connectivity is working or like any kind of those nitty gritty things. So again, when, when I kind of look at it, I, I would say it's really making it easier for developers and companies of all sizes to really build their companies and their infrastructure without having to worry about a lot of this headache that comes with, with infrastructure. Um, and that, that's kind of my take on it. And that's kind of like a philosophy we're applying to like our open source load balancers, Kubernetes, and a lot of our other products too that we kind of have currently and that we're currently building out as well. Yeah, I think that's one of the areas I feel like we've lost sight of with the, the big, in the big cloud battles is just that simple abstraction away of, of what, what we shouldn't have to, I mean, I'm, I, you mentioned racking and, you know, I, have those PTSD from the nineties. Like literally yeah. I drove all of my servers one time from data center to data center, hauled them in on the cart, came back out and someone had stolen all my cables from my car while I was in the parking lot. Like I have those kind of PTSD stories. Yeah. And so like, and DNS back when you make a DNS mess up, you know, you had to live with it for 24, 48 hours. So the cloud for me, was about abstracting away a lot of that pain and suffering and and I feel like, like Heroku early on had this, had, did this well. They've lost sight of that, I would say as well. But with Kubernetes, it really feels like we could put guardrails on for developers. So we all don't have to become Kubernetes expert and feel a lot of Kubernetes pain. Right. But then see a lot of the benefits of Kubernetes. Yeah. And I, I think that's, that's kind of what we, we you know, the, the way I kind of looked at it when I came on board for Vulture, it was, you know, we want Kubernetes and I, I've used Kubernetes in the past, but we, we quickly came to learn, or I quickly came to learn rather was using Kubernetes and managing it in an abstracted way are just completely different beasts. Um, and that was, that was a very interesting problem to solve. And I think a lot of these problems, even with load balancers are conceptually, you understand how they work, but now if you have to manage it and offer it in a managed solution where I, the user, don't have to really, for lack of a better word, even care how it's running or just I just need to make sure that it's up and running. That's all I care about. That's a very interesting problem to solve, especially in the Kubernetes space, because there were so many interesting problems we kind of faced around 
the control plane because you know with the cncf there's these conformance tests and there are specific things you have to do in order for it to be considered a managed cloud provider um and one of them was the control plane needs to be completely hidden the user can't have access to it and it can't have access to any of the components running on that kubernetes cluster and there's a lot of interesting problems like how do you do that because if you look at a lot of these tutorials online a lot of it's like kubeadmin um and with kubeadmin everything runs as a container and you have access to everything so you can't really I'm sure you can use that in specific ways but there are a lot of these problems that you wouldn't normally face using kubernetes that we kind of or any cloud provider kind of runs into is you have to abstract these already complex solutions for the user so they don't have to worry about it so we're basically taking on the burden there um but it's great. Like if I was using Kubernetes, I wouldn't want to maintain the control plane and make sure the private networking or these components are running because that is that is a lot of work. I'd rather be, as an engineer, I'd rather be focused on my applications and growing them out and not worrying about the infrastructure. And I think that's kind of the next evolution, I'd say. You see a lot of these serverless type of open source tools where they're abstracting it more and more. And these developers are really not even considering like what it runs on. It's just, here's my application, here's my container. I don't care how you run it, just run it. And I think that's interesting. I think that's an interesting problem that we're kind of all working towards is this next level of abstraction that is one step, I guess, lower than Kubernetes, right? Um, not writing YAML would be great. <laughs> not writing <laughs> I know so many folks would be much happier not writing YAML. <laughs> um, so you, you mentioned your API in there, and that's one mm -hmm. uh, characteristic of cloud is, for me, is it's it's not just about the infrastructure and, and everything we just talked about, but it's also about the fact that I you know, when I started using AWS, there was no console. There was, I was either using the CLI or I was using the API, and that that automation for me is a super critical aspect, whether, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's all the way up to Terraform and Ansible and, and kind of that top to, you know, uh, infrastructure as code and programming your architecture to just more ad hoc uh, API, just making API calls to configure or automate what you need. But tell me a little bit about the journey. You said you were on version two. So how, how, what's been your API journey to, to bring that to life? So the API journey kind of starts um, starts a little bit earlier than that. So what I mentioned before that when I came on board with Vulture, like our vision was manage Kubernetes. So we kind of had to take inventory and stock of like, okay, what what do we need to even start working towards that? Um, and the first thing we kind of realized was like, we need a Go client, right? Because there's a lot of these open source plugins um, for those familiar with Kubernetes. There's a a CCM, the Cloud Controller Manager, and the Container Storage Interface. These are all public plugins that anyone can use, and we kind of need to interact with, with Vulture as a first-class citizen. So we started building out the uh, the Go client, and that was version one of the API was still there. Um, and anyone who's written loosely typed languages, you know it's loosely typed. You can kind of get away with certain things. But with Go and strictly typed, we quickly ran into a lot of these headaches where the API was a bit inconsistent. So list calls would return one field as a string and then the next one it would be an int. Um, 
if you're writing Ruby or something else, it's not a big deal. You don't even think twice about it. But implementing that with the Go client was a headache because we tried to fix and introduce as much of these inconsistent fixes to the API. And we tried to be thoughtful of like not introducing breaking changes because as we all know, if that, that was the API's behavior, someone's depending on that. So even though we, we might be fixing one of these problems, we're probably going to break something for someone. So it was a, that was an interesting problem to solve for. So we kind of tried to do as much as we could that made sense on the API, but then do a lot of fixes in the Go client, which it was kind of type juggling, doing custom JSON marshaller, stuff like that. Um, and then once we had that Go client, like it was we in the back of our minds, we're like, we're going to have to update this API to a V2 um, at some point. But that we kind of got derailed and we started implementing like Terraform, a CLI, because it's like we had this Go client. Why not start building out our open source, which we kind of didn't really have at the time. So fast forward a bit. Um, we got to the point where we had to start integrating with the CCM and the CSI. And it was at this point where it was kind of like the Go client got us this far with all these integrations, but it's not going to work with the CCM or the CSI or these Kubernetes plugins that we're going to have to start writing. Um, some of the big pain points there was we didn't really have, we didn't have pagination V1. So a lot of these integrations had to do a lot of list calls and start filtering and stuff. And without pagination, if you have a few resources, it's not a big deal, but in a Kubernetes cluster, kind of, we were thinking about larger scale enterprise customers. If they have thousands of instances, these list calls were heavy. We could support them, but it was just, it wasn't really the optimal solution. So it was at that point where we we're like, okay, we need to kind of update the API to V2. And that's when we really, if you look at API V1 in comparison to V2, they're drastically different. Um, we have pagination in, in V2. We have the URIs are more JSON spec where they're more CRUD oriented. Uh, V1 had a lot of, a lot of verbs in the, um, in the URI. So it was like, get lists, get servers lists, stuff like that. So we kind of modernized the URIs to be a bit more standard. Um, we switched to a OAuth2 type of, um, authentication with, with the headers. And we also introduced just proper JSON responses for request and uh, response because V1, that was an interesting thing in V1 and it was a product of its time. So I try not to bash it that much. Um, we would send form requests and get back JSON. So that was like a very fun thing to solve for in the Go client and a lot of these tools was like, we have these two types of data, like we're sending you know, form data and we're getting back JSON. It was just really kind of um, hard to work with. So V2 introduced a lot of fixes for consistency, a lot of modernization of what you would expect out of a API in, in you know, today's kind of uh, software climate. Um, and then once we, once we had V2, um, you know, a lot of changes, it was, a, it was a difficult kind, not difficult, but in order for you to upgrade the, from V1 to V2, it would have required a, a decent amount of work just because, you know, the return types were different. We were sending the, the URIs were completely different. The list calls now had pagination. So that would require you to kind of properly integrate with that. So V V2 is, I was worried that a lot of people would be kind of upset that like it's drastically different, but it was total opposite. People kind of were really happy and we've seen huge adoption of people migrating from V1 to V2. But after that, we then had to go 
update our Go client and update all of our tooling. Um, but one thing we've seen, we've seen like some some good perform performance gains and just overall easier maintainability across these tools and products. Um, so it, it took a while for us to kind of update to V2, but we tried to make it as last as long as we could until it was just like, this isn't going to work anymore. How did, how did you come about the design of this API? Was it, I mean, did it take you a while to come up with all the characteristics that you wanted or were, did you have that feedback loop and all those pain points that you'd been experiencing yourself or customers had been over years? So we were dog fooding a lot of API V1 in our open source tooling, our integrations, because we started becoming way more active in open source. So like we were integrating with Terraform, Packer, a lot of third, like anywhere we could integrate with Vulture, we were dogfooding um, as much of our API and our own clients into those. And, and before coming to to Vulture, I actually worked at Vonage um, where I, I uh, worked on a lot of monolithic to Kubernetes microservice migrations. And that's where I kind of picked up a lot of API design and became a bit more obsessed with API design. That's kind of like my uh, my bread and butter before kind of switching over to the Kubernetes scene. So, you know, I was always a bit outspoken, I'd say, about API v1, tried to be reasonable about, reasonable about it. But there was a lot of things like right off the bat, you know, I was just like, this isn't going to work. The URIs aren't restful. You know, we don't have paging. We, we There's just so much about it that didn't work. Like one thing I, I disliked but we kind of did end up fixing was proper um top level nodes in your responses which we we didn't have um so it was it was a lot of us dog fooding it and us kind of using it realizing like we we should we should fix this we should fix that it would be really cool if we could do this um and also while we were dog fooding a lot of these integrations we were we got very close to a lot of these calls and we were, we were starting to realize like some of these calls could be condensed. Um, so I don't, I don't have any good examples off the top of my head, but let's say some of them, um, there was like a list call which would return pretty much all the data about a given resource, but then one or two resources just didn't exist in that list or get call. So then we would have to make a supplementary call. Um, in certain cases, we could have we couldn't fix that. It was there for specific reasons, but we did cut out a lot of unnecessary calls and a lot of these secondary calls that just made the integration a bit funky. Um, so now, you know, some of the resources are pretty clean where you just have your CRUD actions, your create, read, update, delete list, and that's all you need. But if you look at V1, you'll see that there's like five versions of update. It was update this, update that, update, so on and so forth. Um, and we did release the API in a public beta type of thing. So we did release it. We didn't upgrade all of the tooling and the Go clients yet. We did have like these nightly builds of them, but we wanted to kind of put it out there and get immediate feedback from customers. Like it's these people, you know, once we go with like a hardened, this is V2, and then we integrate all of the tools and our clients, it's really hard to make those changes later on because I, I try to be very conscious about if we change this field or if we change this call, like adding data to these calls, not a big deal, but like changing the behavior, that's, I want to limit breaking changes as much as possible. Um, so that's why we released it as like a, a beta early on and tried to get as much feedback to see if there's anything that our, any customer 
may or may not have liked or what were the pain points and just trying to get as much feedback because once we cut a v2 or once v2 became kind of ga and all the tools got cut over that's when i was just a bit more worried about like you know i want to make sure that we're not going to be inherently breaking tools down the line or, or integrations or whatever the case may be because that's always a concern once you kind of make something go ga especially an api um and i try to limit that with with, with everything we do at vulture yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, kudos to you for mentioning breaking changes enough times. So thank you for your on the breaking You're changes podcast. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, Cause I don't always get that, but yeah, you took it, you took it home there. Um, that's, I mean, that's the pain, that's the pain and suffering that, that people experience the most. So how, but a lot of the customers I talk to, they're just scared to death of releasing early like this. What, what gives you the confidence and the ability to, to release like this early on and get feedback? So we, we do that we, we we do that with a lot of things. We did that with load balancers. We did that with with Kubernetes where we kind of we call it a beta, right? And I, I try to be very clear, like, hey, this is a beta, like use it. Um but don't I don't want to say don't rely on it for production, but just use it. Like try to give us this feedback because there's a lot of things, you know, I can account for what a Kubernetes or what a load balancer should have, but I'm more interested in what what users are kind of using it for because I don't know what all the edge cases are, right? Like the cloud is so vast where I might think, as if this is a bad example, let's just say I don't use HTTPS, right? I'm like, I don't need SSL. But it turns out, you know, we release a product and everyone's like, um, where's TLS? Like we need HTTPS support on a load balancer. So it, it's kind of, I, I kind of like that feedback loop because there's so many of these edge cases that I can't account for. I don't, I'm not even aware of. So releasing these products in a bit of a, I try to, we try to polish them up. Like they are working, they are, we call them beta, but the, you know, everything is pretty much done to the point. It's more or less it's beta, but what features are we missing or what features aren't working the way you would think? So it is a bit, you mentioned, you know, people are scared to death and it is a bit scary because, you know, we're releasing this, this product that, may or may not have all the bells and whistles that a user might want yet. So like sometimes the feedback is good and you're, you're always thinking like in the back of your mind, like, oh man, someone's going to get really upset and then just completely like write a, a mean ticket or something. Right. Um, but I think for us, it's, if we release it, I rather release it early in a beta state and get that feedback and just see what works, what doesn't and, and work with our customers and our community and just Tune, fine tuning it for them because again i can only know so much about how they would use it because the cloud so that's i think that's interesting about the cloud is you'll be surprised to see how people are using like a load balancer or kubernetes or instances or, or dns like some people have really creative solutions that you know I, i'll look at and i'll be like oh wow that's i would have never thought of that that's really interesting so I think for us, releasing these things early on and asking and working with our users in our community, whether that's open source or just early adopters to kind of fine tune and, and adapt and, and iterate over these products is a better kind of way of working about it as opposed to just releasing it and calling it you know finished and then not being open to that feedback loop. Yeah, and you're going to 
you're going to not waste as much time. That feedback loop gets shortened rather than it being an 18 month feedback loop where you put an API out there or two, three years, right. it's shortened and, and condensed. So it's much healthier. So what is, what's t the next year hold for Vulture? Like what, what's top of mind as far as what y'all are into in, investing in with your roadmap? What are customers needing? What's, what's, what's the most important part of what you're building? So, um, one thing we recently kind of teased that uh, on the, the Vulture homepage is um, we are working and databases as a service uh, will be coming out. Um, so that's that's one thing that we kind of already announced, um, which is in the pipeline, which is which is exciting to kind of get out there for users. And I think in relation to that, what we kind of want to do is we we really do want to tailor to our customers, right? Like if I'm deploying this entire application to this entire stack, like we want to make sure that they have their, their databases that it can connect to Kubernetes and load balancers and kind of have not have this sprawl of multiple products, like, you know, the hyper cloud providers may or may not have where it's like, there's like 16 different um, container solutions. And it's like, which one do you use? But rather having all of these critical core products that are easy to use that have predictable pricing that just just work it's just like really easy lego pieces right that just kind of click into one another um other things we're kind of working on we did just release our 25th location um which is really cool to see um it is mumbai so we have 25 regions worldwide um, and we're working, you know, especially all I can talk for like Kubernetes and VK. We're, we're working on a lot of cool features, um, automatic upgrades um, and region allowing VK, VKE of the Vulture Kubernetes engine to be on more regions. Um, and along with some other things that were kind of in the pipeline with that is like high available control planes. So in regards to Kubernetes, we're looking to get it in more areas for more users and making it simpler, like making these harder components like high available control planes easier for all users to kind of have. It's just the way I look at it is if I have a Kubernetes cluster, regardless where it is, I, it's it's hard to do a high available control plane and wiring it up and configuring it. Like as a user, I just want to click a button on my control plane and convert it to be highly available. Um, so there's a lot of things like that, like for existing products, we're looking to enhance them and make them more feature rich, easier to use and kind of streamline them a bit more. Um, and one thing that's that's on my mind is making it easy so that all of these components can kind of click into one another. Um, for example, load balancers and block storage with Kubernetes that they're natively supported. You just kind of deploy your 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 Kubernetes manifests as ingress or a load balancer type or PVC, and they automatically get deployed and they're linked on your account. Like your account can show you like, hey, these resources are part of this and they're all kind of intertwined and you have that ease of use to kind of see things and switch things around. So as we kind of evolve a lot of these products with something like database, database as a service, like we're, we're looking to see like, what's the easiest way we can hook this into like Kubernetes um, or a load balancer, whatever the case may be, right? Just kind of looking at holistically all of our products and kind of bringing them in closer together. Um, there are other things where we are working on, but I, I can't just, I can't announce them just yet, but there, there are definitely some exciting things in the pipeline that 
over the the next few months or so that um will be will be rolling out which i think a lot of our customers will be very excited to see we'll stay tuned for that when it comes to the the regional uh deployment is it is the primary driver of this performance and being closer to customers and or is it regulatory yeah. and and that so yeah like we're looking at a big portion of it is like where majority of our customers and how what's the closest we can get to them so most of our customers when they're deploying cloud resources they always want their resources as close as possible to them right for latency reasons or whatever kind of specific use case they want but enabling our users to deploy any one of our you know products that we offer close as close as them as possible is is definitely beneficial for them because now they don't have to worry about you know the only location in Europe is is Frankfurt or the only location in the US is either US west or US east we kind of have a global footprint that enables users to deploy as close as possible to them, but it also enables them to have good options for failovers. So, you know, if we, if we're in us East, let's say New Jersey, New York data center, but we want to fail over, but still have it on the East coast, you know, we have, we offer a Miami, um, kind of a data center there. So there is, it enables users to get more one to have it as close as possible, but two also offer them more options in what they're building out if they choose to kind of have these failovers or these more interesting kind of infrastructure build outs or whatever whatever it is they're building so for me when i'm looking at it i'm looking at what's what's how close can i get it but then what kind of failover paths do i have like do i have multiple points where i can kind of have my infrastructure fail over or can i build my infrastructure in a way where I have one central location and then it kind of like sends data out to multiple regions, kind of like in a CDN type of manner where I can kind of spread out my data to where my applications users are. Um, so I, I think, I think the biggest thing is just enabling users more locations closer to them and just giving them the option instead of just like eight data centers or whatever the case is. Use the more options you have, the always better off you'll always be. Right. Yeah. Agreed. So in this day and age right now, I, I manage a team of 25 people and, and it's, it's a challenge to, to keep everyone motivated, working in the mm -hmm. same motion. What do you, what's, what, what are your secrets to staying passionate, driven, interested in what you're working on each day so that you can move things forward in, in this time? It's a good question. Um, so for me, the, one of the biggest reasons, and I guess this is a, a bit of a cop-out answer. Um, when I was working at Vonage, I really kind of, a, API design was like one thing I was just, I became obsessed with. I don't know why, like it just, it doesn't seem rational to me. It's just like, what about APIs is interesting, but I thought, you know, this is a gateway to like your applications and it's the first thing you just kind of interact with. And that then kind of led me into the cloud scene with Kubernetes. So. When I came to Vulture, I came I came here with a specific kind of goal where like, you know, I, I want to build out Kubernetes. That's why I came on board. But I think that what we're building out is just so unique and interesting. Um, and like the space is always evolving. Like if we look six years ago, there was no Kubernetes, right? It was just people were just deploying regular cloud compute and kind of configuring it. Or actually, it's more than six years ago now. But 
with Kubernetes now, you, the, it's it's changing so much. Like containers are kind of taking over, but then I don't want to say Kubernetes is slowing down, but you're seeing people kind of now solve these other interesting problems where they're like, containers are great, but I hate YAML. How can I now kind of automate that another level? So I think while we're kind of solving for these managed load balancers, Kubernetes, all of these kind of solutions, it's enabling us to also kind of think about how can we, what can we do with this, right? We already have a managed container service. Can we go another layer lower and kind of abstract it out or maybe write some kind of custom resource definitions or can we build on top of it or what can we do? And I think that's what always got me interested because I was always looking to build these out in my, in my free time before coming to Vulture, whereas I was obsessed with automation. I was trying to build, I was trying to build something like build pack, which builds your containers without the need of Docker files. Right. Um, like I, 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 those are the things that I was kind of, I've been fascinated about automation and just kind of abstracting a lot of these layers and shamelessly, or I guess not, but, you know, working at Vulture that enables me to kind of be interested and in, in work in these really interesting spaces and, and solutions. Well, I'm, I'm super thankful for nerdy folks like you diving because I like Kubernetes, like I've done enough just to scare the hell out of me and to know that I don't want to become an expert in all of the minutia in there. So I'm super thankful that people like you are going to abstract that away from me and make it easier. <laughs> You're, you're welcome. And, and sometimes, uh, look, I'll, I'll admit there are some times where we're, you know, we're facing like some kind of, I don't want to say problem, but like there's, there's this problem we're kind of facing. We're just like, oh man, this was like, this was a mistake. Let's just go back to racking and just kind of doing this stuff by hand, right? Like may, maybe that was the better way. But no, I think, I, I, th I, I think the advent of like a lot of these things are just enabling developers to do more with, with needing less. And I think that's, that's kind of what automation was really what kind of drives me is like, I'm obsessed with how can we automate this in a way that just really disconnects us. Right. Um, so that, that's always kind of like my angle when I'm approaching these things. So I think that's, I think those are the killer things that we we're, we're kind of working on. I like it. So back to the, the API design piece, because mm -hmm. I, I like you, I'm, I'm obsessed with API design, but I encounter a lot of, so putting on my hat of, you know, I'm trying to move forward an API first design first initiative within my enterprise organization. And I hit these pockets of resistance, folks who are, uh, for lack of a better word, code first. And, and they're like, you know, I try to show them the benefits of open API and, and, and they're like, I'm a programmer. I'm not a, you know, I'm not a, a yammeler or, you know, mm -hmm. I don't want to do these things. Uh, what do you say to convince them of the benefits of API design and just kind of pausing there? Like we're moving fast. We're, we're, we're in the business of producing things and, and releasing and your design first approach or your design, your focus on design just gets in that way. What do you say? That, that's a good one because um, <laughs> I, I think I think there's an upfront cost that people kind of get in, intimidated by, um, and I think the same goes with with kind of Kubernetes there, where there's this there's this hurdle, right? With API design, I the first thing I did is I wrote out a rough open API spec, right, and that's a five thousand or plus size YAML, and like you share that to someone, they're going to be like, "Whoa, all right, um, what is this?" <laughs> I'm like, "Well, that's the open API spec." And I think 
there is an upfront cost and it's it, when you're looking at it, you know, with any kind of design work, you're just like, I could have built half of it already by the time you kind of spent around kind of messing around and monkeying around with, with this, with this YAML spec. But I think what, what you get later on is once that's concrete, that's a solid contract, right? And what that contract gives you is it, it's a contract. Um, we can take that and t- take that YAML and put it into like a open API spec parser for our application. So if we're using it against our services, we don't have to spend the time of updating and just trying to remember like, what are all the definitions? Like, all right, this fuel has to be a string, but we should use this when this is right. We eliminate a lot of that headache. We have this defined spec that we can kind of share around the organization, regardless if it's a public API or even if it's an internal service, like that specification, I think it also, it opens up a conversation as well, because I can share that with you, for example, and we can kind of go like, all right, these fields make sense. This URI is, is a bit weird. So there is upfront cost and people get scared by it. But I think later on, once you start implementing or maintenance rather, like once it's already out there, people usually tend to see like, okay, you know, I can see why we did this entire YAML because now we just kind of feed it into our services when we're making API calls and it kind of checks against it. Um, and we also have a consistent documentation, right? I think as as developers, we can all admit our <laughs> our documentation isn't always the most up to date um, because we have this this difference between our application code and our documentation. Um, so I might update the our API, for example, with new fields and new whatever the case is, but then completely forget about the documentation. If, if we kind of take this design first approach we have this source of truth that our application would, will check against and that we can offer as, as a documentation to our users. So the benefits to me is mostly around the initial conversation that may be painful because people are, you know, all right, why am I looking at this YAML? But later on, it, it, it serves as a blueprint, whether that's, you know, validation against API services or just validation against public documentation or internal documentation that, that needs to be changed first and then we all work against it and it's it's a source of truth and i think that it like i said the initial hurdle is a bit rough but once you have it it's it's pretty straightforward to update with tools like you know swagger redoc or stoplight or whatever else is out there right um postman as well um which we use so i think for me that that's i have to kind of bite the bullet i'll do the spec it's one of those things where it's You'll you'll you're happy that you have it once it's once it's there, but when you don't have it and you need it, that's when you're like, oh man, this is really rough. So I think it's one of those cases where it's a hurdle, but the benefits that come out of it later on usually tend to show themselves to developers in in situations where if they didn't have it, they'd be kind of upset. Agreed. It it really gets us on the same page when it comes to a human and a machine readable. So us humans, right. cause I think we take for granted as teams like, Hey, yeah, we, we got what we understood what you said. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Parameters, headers, blah, 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 you know, mm-hmm. but we're not. And, and we make a lot, there's a lot of inconsistencies, but then machine readable to get everyone on the same page downstream across all the tools we use, all the third party services, we right. use, it's pretty critical, but it's hard to make folks see all of that sometimes. So that's, I'm always just trying to build that toolbox so we can convince the 
the people, the skeptics that, that can't see it and then convert them. Cause I think that's the other part is you got to convert them to kind of being believers and seeing the benefits and then they'll, they'll be on your team. So. Yeah, definitely. I think that's, that's, that's pretty much it. Like from my experiences, once they kind of see the benefits, um, usually everyone, they, they won't admit it. Like, they're not gonna be like, Hey, you were right. But they'll just be like, you know, grumpily like, yeah, all right. I can, maybe it works, you know, that type of behavior, but definitely. Well, um, this has been great. I think I covered a lot of the areas. I mean, I definitely wanted to learn, I think the Kubernetes kind of abstracting way, the complexity of Kubernetes, I'm super interested, but your own API journey. And then I would say your views on API design are just a, a bonus for me because that's a, um, very helpful in what I do. But I really appreciate you joining me today and, and being part of this conversation and sharing sharing your views of things. I appreciate you guys having me. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks again to David for stopping by. You can find more on David at LinkedIn and Constant at Constant.com. You can subscribe to the Breaking Changes podcast at postman.com slash events slash breaking dash changes. I'm your host, Ken Lane, and until next time, cheers. Cheers.